do you think our dominion is limited to Earth? Is it ungodly if we invest in colonizing Mars? The rest is just sin. Then I've seen the others who are like, no, dude, everything, you know, I'm going to be a transhumanist and I'm going to, you know, put, I'm going to upload myself. I'm like, wait, is that the only two, <laughs> the only two options is those yeah. two? Oh, I read Revelation too. And I don't see anything about the United States living through yeah, an yeah. AI invasion or anything. It has to do with uh, David's mighty men. Could these men be good standing members of my church? May God bless and keep the czar very, very far away from us. <laughs> 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 hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedecase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is a very, very special one. I have with me another returning guest, C.R. Wiley, and the last time we talked about his book, In the House of Tom Bombadil. Singing is sustained, talking. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm not sure that, that the idea that, you know, the word and lagos de bar and so forth and music are necessarily uh, incompatible. It's a it's a shorter book, but it's like just packed with a lot of good gnomic statements and wisdom. And um, one episode was not enough. So I have him back on. We're going to be talking about wisdom in general, uh, wisdom in God, wisdom in philosophy. What is wisdom? How do we find it? Where can a young man like get it? Um, so I'm really excited to learn from him myself and to pass that on to you guys. So make sure you watch to the end so you can be an expert in finding wisdom and gaining it for yourself and for your children's children. <clears throat> Before we jump in, I want to thank everyone who's making this podcast happen over on Patreon and YouTube members. If you guys like this show, if you want to see me continue bringing guests on to bring wisdom to you, please consider becoming a Patreon patron or a YouTube member. That's the best way to sh support the show. You can find the links in the description wherever you're getting this podcast at. Uh, if you're on YouTube, you know, just there's a join button. Everywhere else, look for that Patreon button. There's different perks and different levels of support. So please check that out and, uh, yeah, support your boy. That's enough commodification. Let's jump in with uh, Chris Wiley and let's get into some wisdom stuff. Chris, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast, man. Yeah, glad to do it, Parker. Good to be with you again. Yeah. Um, dude, so I wanted to talk to you about wisdom because you've been a, a contractor. You've been a philosophy professor, a pastor. You played a lot of different roles and you still um, you still have like you're still jovial. Uh, you're not like cynical. You're not like burned out or anything. You seem like a, a wise dude. So I want to hope that's not uh, embarrassing to, to put you on the spot like that. No, I'm glad to I come across that way anyway. <laughs> and you got the wisdom beard, man. It's, it's beautiful. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, can you for for the audience who uh, who is unfamiliar with you or hasn't listened to our last podcast episode? Can you can you give us a characterization like who who is C.R. Wiley? Yeah. Well, I, I as you noted, I'm a pastor. I serve a church here in the Pacific Northwest. I've been in in this area about two and a half years. Before that, I lived in New England for about thirty plus years and served churches there. Um, I spent time in Boston. Involved, I was involved in urban ministry for about a decade and um, got a background in the visual arts. Um, I uh, draw stuff and paint stuff, but I also have, uh, as you noted, uh, some background with teaching philosophy. I taught philosophy for a, for a decade at the undergraduate level, so college students. And then um, uh, I've been, as you noted, a contractor and I've been a real estate investor, so I've owned uh, commercial real estate since the early nineties mm. and, uh, got three grown kids and I've got five grandchildren and, 
Um, got a great wife. We've been married, man, how long is it now? It's going on 38 years. Hmm. So anyway, yeah, things are great. Um, so I still have a, I still have a home back in new England. And so I kind of split time between the, uh, my place here and in the state of Washington. I live right outside of Portland. I'm on the Washington side of the Columbia river. Oh, nice. Okay. And, uh, and my place back in Connecticut. The two extremes, man. You ever spend any time in the, in the Midwest at all or no? Uh, when I'm invited. <laughs> <laughs> got to get you out here. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I, I did my first graduate program in Kansas City, so I mm. spent time there. And then as a kid, uh, I, I spent a good part of my childhood in St. Louis. My father was uh, on faculty at uh, Washington U there. Okay. Oh, yeah. You'd mentioned last time that your, your father was an academic. What, uh, what did he teach there? He was in chemical engineering. He was very junior faculty. He had um, he he left the academy before he got very far along in his his career there. But but that's what I remember from as a, you know when I was a kid. Wow. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, some, something that's fascinating. I, I'm sorry for uh, the whiplash for the audience, but this is maybe uh, this is like a psychology session for me or a wisdom session for me to to, to glean from you. You had mentioned that uh, you mentioned that you you draw and, and you. Um, you do some art there. And I think you said you got into that as a kid um, because you wanted to draw comic books. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was a big comic book fan. My, my extended family, my father's uh, and my mother, uh, they, they were into the arts. So I was introduced to the arts as a kid and and I I showed some promise. And so I think I was like seven years old when I was first enrolled in art school. And, uh, but it was always something I was, uh, preoccupied with and yeah i wanted to be a comic book artist that was my my big dream i think just about any kid any guy anyway back in the day this would be the late 60s 70s you know that's if they had a an interest in 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 art that was the place they wanted to go Mm, okay see see for me that's so fascinating because if, if kids were into comic books You'd make fun of them when I was growing up, <laughs> and and meanwhile, all of us were watching Batman the animated series oh, yeah, or Superman. Yeah. We'd watch the the cartoons, but if you were into comic books, you're like, dude, what's wrong with you? What's going on? Yeah, right. Why don't you watch Dragon Ball Z? You know, <laughs> yeah. right? Well, it, it it's a little different when you can draw them. Everybody kind of likes you then again. Oh so. yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. Um, did did you have did you have a favorite? Were you a Superman guy or or who were you into? No, I was actually I wasn't too much into the Marvel or the DC. Uh, worlds. I, I was more interested in kind of stuff that was coming out of Europe. But uh, in terms of if you if you had had me, if you pinned me to the ground and said you got to like somebody that's popular, I guess maybe Silver Surfer, mm-hmm. you know, kind of even stuff that's just a little offbeat in like yeah. the, the Marvel and DC world, you know, Green Lantern, that kind of stuff. Totally, man. I was the same way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was my dad feeding me stuff, but yeah, Silver Surfer, we would get, just cause of Thanos really when I was a kid. But, <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Um, so <clears throat> I, what counts as, uh, being masculine and like masculine wisdom seems to, to, it seems to change. And I, I, I I'm not sure if it really changes or if there's like a set of parameters that, you know what there's still a natural order and you can be over here over there but um drawing today or at least when i grew up um it wasn't like a masculine characteristic and yet i it's still like creating order out of chaos and like i think we were impoverished and missing that but you know you seem like someone who's embodying a fuller spectrum 
So can you help us like, where does drawing fit? What's the deal? How do you think of it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, when you think about King David, uh, here's a guy who could kill you or sing to you. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, so that kind of the, the warrior poet kind yeah. of thing. And I think there's always been something of a connection, at least prior to the modern era between the arts and masculine occupations. You know, you think of Homer, um, you know, he goes on and on about the, the wonder of, you know, Achilles armor, <laughs> mm. you know, uh, you know, this, you know, describing it and praising it and things like that. You see the same thing with like uh, in the, but I, I guess, um, I, 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 and I do think you see it even today uh, in some places that perhaps people don't think to look. So I think the hip hop scene is kind of a revival of classical um, masculinity and in a certain sense. So if you think about, you know, if you were to take Achilles or Homer and put him into our world, um, that would be a place where he'd feel very much at home <laughs> yeah. to get my drift, you know? Yeah. So now maybe, maybe I've been told that the hip hop scene has changed a bit. Uh, and maybe I'm thinking about what was the case, maybe t even 15, 20 years ago, mm -hmm. but it was very much a kind of virile, uh, braggadocious kind of, kind of scene. Yeah. I, I, I kind of liken, um, so when I think about say Greek heroes, and then I think about Roman, sort of the Roman ideal, I was a Red Sox fan back in the day when the Red Sox, you know, you know, finally won the, the World Series, you know, yeah. like in 2004. And the two the two people on the team that I think represented the Greek heroic ideal and the Roman heroic, Homeric, or the Roman uh, heroic ideal, ideal were uh, David Ortiz. He was the Greek, you know, you, uh, and then uh, Jason Veritek was the Roman. So with 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 Ortiz, he'd hit a home run and admire his home run, flip his bat you know, take the slow trot around the bases, you know, just you know, reveling in the glory of the moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, that's the, that's the Greek Homeric ideal. And then, so there's an aesthetic to that, you know, there's a, there's the flair, there's something about how you, there's the bling, you know, there's mm -hmm. all of that. Um, and then uh, the Roman ideal was more this sort of, I think the stripped down, I do my duty. I'm almost embarrassed to be praised yes. kind of thing. And that was Jason Veritek. He hit a home run, put his head down, run around the bases as fast as he could so as not to make the pitcher feel too bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. But I just did my duty. Uh, I'm not here for the praise. I hit a home run because my team needed it. And mm. <laughs> that kind of thing. Man. Okay, so you're you're really putting your finger on something that I've been noticing a lot in the wrestling community. I, I grew up, okay. that, that's my people. I, I grew up American folk style wrestling since first grade. Those are the people I understand. My heroes were always my wrestling coaches, and that's what a man looked like to me. And the ideal was, I didn't have this terminology till you, but it was it was a Roman uh, heroic ideal. Mm -hmm. Look, man, you shake hands. You don't, you don't boast. You're not doing backflips after you win. What are you doing? That's no, right. you don't flex, you know, let it show, <laughs> let it show, you know, right, in your right. muscles while you're doing it, but you don't flex afterwards. And it's changing with this new, especially with, with Gen Z, um, they're flexing, they're, they're taking down their, their tops and flexing and stuff. And a lot of us are like, what are you doing? And, and the rest, you know, other people are like, eh, let them do their thing. That's what they're into. And it's the Greek ideal. And it's been a big shift. And yeah. a lot of us are just experiencing it and trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah, it seems like maybe MMA has had some yeah. some influence on just even traditional wrestling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, sometimes people will say, "Well, that's kind of a feat or effeminate." 
Yeah, I guess so. But I, I mean, I think uh, there's always been uh, sort of a temptation with uh, men who whose virility uh, wins praise to, you know, enjoy the praise, you know, mm -hmm. and to sort of adorn themselves in ways that seem to correspond, you know, so they want that bling, they want the the big flowing robe, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, cape or whatever, <laughs> that kind yeah. of thing. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, it's maybe a bit peacockish, but remember the peacock is male. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> the, the good, you know, when you think about it in nature, you know, you think about the big lion with the mane, it's the male, you know, mm -hmm. so, and, you know, the, the, the silverback gorilla pounding his chest, you know, that kind of, so I do think there is a kind of, uh, place for display. Now, how how Christians should think about this, I think, is a great matter to consider. I I personally, uh, I'm much more comfortable with the Roman ideal. Yeah. You know, I think you know, I, I do my duty. Uh, I I do care about what you think about me, but I want it to be uh, a, a kind of regard that I I served the interest of our our community, our group, our family, that kind of thing. I wasn't trying to show off. I was, yeah. I was just, uh, trying to be of use to the people around me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've seen, um, one of my friends, I won't mention his name, but one of my, uh, friends, one of my best friends and, uh, teammates in college, he had, um, he had like, I called it stupid humility or dumb humility because <laughs> when you would praise him, he was a jacked dude. And, um, you know, it wasn't the most skilled on our team, but sometimes he would just wreck somebody. We'd be like, dude, that was a great job. Vic, you know, it wasn't that good. And I shouldn't. <laughs> it's like, no, dude, just accept my, accept it. <laughs> that's right. Just accept it. Like, that's part right. of it, too. Yeah. So you, I think you can yeah, go, th you know, the wrong way on the Roman side, too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that there's even a, a question as to what's going on with that. You know, are you trying to fish for more praise? Now, probably in the case of your friend, it wasn't the case. No. But I do think that 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 there is kind of a goofy humility. I think sometimes you just like, if you know, you're the best in the room, just you, in your praise, say, thanks. I appreciate yeah. that. I'm glad you, I'm glad you, uh, you know, appreciate my work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. You know, you don't need to rub it in anybody's face, but you don't need to like pretend you're not either, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's, that's true. There's, there's also something I've been working on is um, <clears throat> thinking about like the fittingness of the situation. So, mm -hmm. You know, having like a, I think it's dumb to have a general rule, like men don't cry. It's like, yeah, well, if, you're, yeah. if your mom dies, you should cry. What are you talking about? You know, right, like, right. if you had a good relationship with your mom and she died, wh why aren't you crying? That's yeah. inappropriate, you know? Right, right. But if you're crying out of stress when your whole family needs you to yeah. not be crying, that's inappropriate, right? It's, it's like there's a fittingness, I would say. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, and sometimes it, it, this sort of thing, uh, this sort of temptation to... Well, it, it, this moves in two directions. So yeah, I think there's a time for everything. You know, you see that Ecclesiastes. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, you know, the men of Issachar were the men who knew what time it was. You know, hmm. it's time for this, it's time for that. <laughs> you know, the fittingness thing, pre-Aristotelian. Um, I, I, I also think that maybe there are impulses that we have at a given time to, to behave in a certain way and it's not appropriate. And then that's the moment we have to like exercise some self-control. Mm. So you give you an example, every once in a while, maybe every, I don't know, two or three months, um, when I'm preaching, uh, there's something that happens and I, I lose my train of thought. 
I, I kind of feel like, oh man, I blew that opportunity. And I'm, I'm like two thirds of the way. And I just feel like sitting down and saying, that's it. Everybody go home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, uh, it, it's not the, the thing to do, you know? And, uh, and there's also kind of an interesting irony to it. So you get to a, a certain point in your work where people give you more credit than you do deserve. Yes. And so like, uh, like, you know, you flubbed up, but they're assuming the best. Mm-hmm. Oh, look at that. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know if I understand. <laughs> you understand perfectly. I just blew it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, they, but they're, 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 they're questioning themselves because of maybe your track record or something like that. Yeah. So at that moment, you know, the, the old statement, you know, never complain, never explain and never, ever apologize actually is an appropriate thing. You know, you don't mm. call attention to your mistakes. Sometimes you just sort mm. of like, well, maybe I can just kind of muffle through this and they'll think, they won't think worse of me. <laughs> yeah. That's so good. I, I preached my first sermon this year, my first three actually, wild at, at different places. And the first one, I totally lost my train of thought and I was genuinely, I genuinely lost it. And I was, I made a joke that wasn't in my notes. So it just blew everything up and it was a good joke. It was worth it. But and then I go, you know, Hey, I straight up lost my train of thought. My pastor called out from the crowd and like, and he, he just gave me a, a reminder. And I was back on track and yeah. someone, one of my friends later was like, that was a great rhetorical, uh, you know, device. Cause it made us all, you know, make you, you're more relatable. Yeah, um, yeah. And I wanted to say that. And I was like, no, I straight up lost my train of thought it wasn't i wasn't manipulating anybody i just yeah, didn't yeah. know right so right. it was it was, that was well good after time. 40 years of doing it it still happens to me okay that's good to know it's good to know and bad to know yeah that's, <laughs> that's to look forward to um chris you got this uh, new book that you've been working on and i've seen rumors of it here and there and so far the working title i believe is how to defeat totalitarianism 2.0 in your spare time and I don't know if that'll be the final or not, but the spare time thing is gold. That's got to yeah, stay yeah, in there. And yeah, um, can yeah. can you tell us a little bit about uh, the book and and what we mean by totalitarianism? Yeah, well, totalitarianism, what characterizes it uh, is its ambition. Um, you know, we can look at the course of human history, and we've got tyrants all over the place, and people who are trying to take advantage of you know their authority, authoritarians, and stuff like that. What makes totalitarianism uh, um, a contemporary phenomenon is its uh, hubris, uh, its its belief, or the sort of the belief that's at work underneath the surface that a total control of a population is possible, meaning even down to your thoughts. Mm. And uh, this isn't pursued, you know, for the sake of the ego of the dictator, although that obviously is in play in many cases, but uh, this is something where an ideology, which has a dream for a, a, you know, a better world, uh, justifies its, its ambit in terms of its, its, its uh, approach and its ambition to control everything in light of that. So, mm. you know, the, the stuff that's, kind of bubbling to the surface now with like the world economic forum and and so forth, things related to food and, you know, global warming and, and, or global climate change or whatever the latest term is. Um, You know, uh, these are the rash, these are the things that are used to, to justify the measures. Mm -hmm. We have to control everything. 
that's why we need a smarter planet. That's why we need, you know, a smarter planet means is more responsive to human desires and control. That's what mm. smarter planet means. I don't know if you're familiar with the term. I'm not, I'm, I'm not familiar with the term yet. Yeah, it was used as a kind of advertising shtick by IBM maybe five years ago, something like that, Time okay. for a Smarter Planet, Internet of Things, all that kind of stuff. Okay. Okay. It, it, what we're getting to is a place where you know, we can control, or at least we think, we can control all the, all the conditions and variables and engineer the world that we think uh, is best. Mm. Um, and you know, there are things that people who are calling for this can point to, uh, to justify the justify the project, but that's basically it. It's it's utopian in character, uh, and the utopia is kind of the expression of a ideological, you know, sort of frame of mind or outlook. <coughs> but that's that's what I'm getting at. So two is I think that we've the the methods. Um, uh, are much more subtle and effective than they were in the early 20th century. So when we think about, you know, the totalitarianisms of communism or fascism in the 1930s, we, you know, that's just, we can look at it and say, well, that's so crude. The optics are really bad. <laughs> no <laughs> one would ever try that again. Well, you're right. No one will ever try to do it that way again. Mm -hmm. But I think that uh, the people who, again, think that they're helping to bring into being a better world uh, are aware of that and they're not going to do it that way. They're not going to pursue uh, that kind of program or mm. that kind of, you know, with that kind of brutal uh, ham fisted approach, it's going to be a much more subtle, it's going to consist of nudges and, and uh, surveillance and that kind of stuff. That's why it's 2.0. Okay. That's terrifying. Um, I wonder, is there a political philosophy that isn't, aimed at t totalitarianism? Yeah, that's a great uh, rhetorical question and different people come up with different thoughts. I mean, yeah. you know, if we, if we look at classical liberalism, um, you know, my friend Patrick Deneen would say we baked it in from the start. <laughs> in other words, we go back to John Locke and kind of look at that kind of, so it kind of lends itself to this over time, even if that wasn't necessarily your, your objective. Right. Um, I think... Uh, in terms of political philosophies, people might not even think of this as a, a political philosophy, but I do think that paleoconservatism and its dependence on sort of conventions and tradition and uh, wisdom handed down through time, mm -hmm. uh, and it's uh, just a, a allergy to the, uh, it's allergic to ideology you know, by definition. Now, what that does is some, some people are just frustrated with it because it seems to be too, I don't know, too cobbled together. Uh, yeah. yeah. So you end up with sort of like a, a Rube Goldberg machine kind of look to like, <laughs> yeah, it's a good yeah. way to put it. You know, it's not, it's not as clean and efficient as libertarianism yeah. or as powerful as communism or any of that kind of stuff. It's, it's all kind of like, you know, scissors and paste and rubber bands. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> that kind of stuff, you know, and you, and you, and you say, well, it works. <laughs> and, and that's the idea, right? It's like well, this, this uh, set of scissors worked and maybe you have this clean uh, brand new one that's, you know, all shiny, but this is the one that works. So let's keep it and slow your roll. And let's, you know, this is why it's cobbled together this way. Cause our forebears, you know, use these things. Yeah. And people are comfortable with it and are, are, are know how to use it. Aren't, and we don't have to rely on the experts. That's another thing. I think ideologies are very appealing to the, to the managerial class. Mm. And I think the managerial class is kind of a necessary evil. I mean, you're always going to need managers. We've had, we've had managers forever. The, the, the big difference uh, it, you know, with regard to the, the moment that we live in is that, again, their ambition. So, yeah. You yeah. think about, say, the great public works of antiquity. Yeah, there was a lot of slave uh, labor, and there were people who were overseeing all of that with whips and stuff. Yeah, and they'd say those were managers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they were taking the the instructions that they had been given and enforcing them. And uh, today we have uh, there's just far more managers, and everything is much more managed everywhere. Yeah. Uh, it's an overmanaged world. So, like, I can I compare the the difference between my childhood and the and the childhood of children today. In many cases, um, there's just not any open space anymore. Um, everything is managed. Yeah. Um, so, like, when I was a kid, you know, I just grab my bat and ball and glove and hop on my bike and run down to the nearest baseball field, and there would always be a bunch of guys hanging out, and we'd have pickup ball and you know the basketball court or whatever. And that's still that, I suppose, in some places, but just seems like every opportunity that we have to create a like a system that is managed and controlled we we do it yeah i i had um i had that transition in my own life from being able to move freely as a kid to now it's a really big deal that we're out and about and our parents are mad and it it, it happened over the course of a summer or two hmm. i remember like one my, my buddy's mom freaked out on us and was like, what are you doing? You're supposed to tell us where you're going and all this stuff. And like, we've never done this our whole lives. What are you yeah. talking about? But once right. we got cell phones, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. if our cell yeah. phone was dead, then they freak out and thought that someone murdered us. Yeah. And so that was yeah. a big transition for us uh, because they could get in touch with us. Now they yeah. felt like they had to get in touch with us. Yeah. I, I enjoyed uh, the neglect of the kind of the mid sixties, <laughs> <laughs> early seventies. I mean, the thing about the me generation is they really were so into themselves. They weren't even thinking about their kids mm. and they had an upside and a downside. And I think some of the, some of the helicopter parenting is kind of a reaction to that, you know, to that yeah. latchkey phenomenon. Yeah. But there was uh, just a tremendous amount of latitude. A lot of kids had just because their parents were just so into themselves. Yeah. They weren't even, they were, they were almost annoyed that they were parents. I remember it vividly. <laughs> yeah, well, when you think of the, um, the managerial class, like I, I, it's, it's very, very obvious in academia and you're like, holy cow, how many administrators do you have? Are you serious? It's crazy. It's um, crazy. When, when I think about kids and, and being able to play freely, um, I'm trying to think of where I got this from, but in, in Lewis or maybe it's a through line in Lewis. He talks about good getting better and evil getting worse. And I wonder if you agree with that statement and, and, and see like a necessity, like, like are there more kidnappings of kids nowadays and they need to have more managers and it's just like an unhappy um, correlation, you know, that we do need to be more careful on kids or is it the helicopter parent? Any, any thoughts on that kind of stuff? 
Yeah, I do. I, I think it's probably a combination of a couple of things. One is just people just didn't think about it much, you know, uh, in the past. Yeah, yeah, they just, and there was a level of comfort that my neighborhood was, you know, generally a good neighborhood. We didn't hear about bad things happening very much. You know, people weren't connected 24 seven to the news cycle and stuff. Mm, yeah, and I think that's part of it. But I also do think that there is a kind of trajectory that things uh, follow. So we live in a society where uh, our political and intellectual elites don't really believe in God. They don't believe in providence. They don't believe. Uh, they think that faith is wishful thinking. Yeah. So um, when you lose confidence that there's actually someone running things, <laughs> then, you know, you think, well, then I need to do it. <laughs> yeah. I, this might be, uh, this is probably before your time, but I remember uh, when Reagan was shot uh, back in the early eighties, um, everybody was sort of, you know, wondering what's going on. And uh, there was a press, uh, you know, it's sort of a, uh, like a, like a public uh, what's with press meet press meeting of the press and the announcement about you know how he was doing and stuff like that and al Haig, who had been a general in the i think the army uh they asked him who's in charge and he just kind of like i'm in charge <laughs> <laughs> and people kind of checked in and said well actually no al's not in charge <laughs> <laughs> they, they did a look they did a you know sort of an analysis of what our constitutional order is and they discovered that al wasn't anywhere near being in charge <laughs> oh, wow. but I, I do think that there is a tendency that we, we we see okay we live in a meaningless machine and somebody's got to take charge of this thing and mm -hmm. we we now have tools that help us to at least believe we can do it, uh, not just, you know, in terms of the natural order, you know, if we do more of this and less of that, this will be what happens um, with regard to global warming or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, but also people. So we don't really respect our fellow citizens as, um, you know, uh, moral agents made in the image of God. They're to be managed. Mm. Um, and we'll do whatever we need to do to manage them. You know, we, we know that they have these delusions of, of, of efficacy and freedom. <laughs> so we can't be straight up about what we're up to. Yeah. <laughs> we got to nudge them and encourage them and do different things to, to at least, uh, get what, you know, get compliance, uh, manufacturing consent. There was a term, that was a term that was used years ago. I think it was actually a term used by maybe Karl Popper or maybe, uh, uh, Noam Chomsky, uh, okay. and it's really insightful. I mean, th there is a tendency that elites have to say, well, this is what we want people to think and believe. That's what propaganda is all about. Right. Yeah. Yeah, man, there's so much the the ambition thing is, is really helpful. And, um, and seeing someone in charge, I think that when I asked the question about uh, do do all political philosophies lead towards uh, totalitarianism? I think that's what I had in mind. That a, a lot of secular ones are like, "Hey, uh, something needs to be done," and I guess we're the ones who are going to have to do it. And so, in my mind, like the the smart planet, uh, Internet of Things, things is like we're going to exert dominion over the planet in this way that we see fit. And a lot of us are like, you know, it's not the vision that I see. Yeah, um, yeah. But then there's a like complete opposite of the like green movement, like the radical green movement who are like, we need to eradicate people. And that's how we care for the planet. It's like, but both of you guys are 
like this is really bad <laughs> you're on both extremes and you don't see that you guys hate each other so you coming at me being a christian but let me just introduce yeah. you to one another here and yeah, let you guys right. fight it out <laughs> that's right that's right yeah that maybe maybe we're the only reason they can even work together is at least we got to keep those uh <laughs> that's right those, those christian people uh you know out of power yeah um yeah i think that's right i think it, so you know the baconian understanding of knowledge knowledge is power uh, I get into that in the Bombadil book, mm -hmm. um, this idea that there isn't any intelligence that is uh, in the sort of the, the structure of, the, of things, but it's something that we bring to this kind of a Kantian notion that, um, you know, reason is something that um, we use to sort out a meaningless reality um, that just, you know, impressions and sense data and stuff. So all of that stuff, um, I think it characterizes the mo modern, you know, this moment that we find ourselves in and whether or not we'll come out on the other side of that is, you know, it wiser. Uh, it's something I hope for. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to live in, to see it. Um, but yeah, that is the situation that we find ourselves in. And so how do we, how do we work in the in in these conditions? Uh, so that's the nature of the book uh, that I'm working on. The first half is an, is an analysis of this of this uh, outlook. It won't be any, anything new to anybody that's got a background in Western thought, but I'm trying to put it into some terms that uh, people can relate to who aren't, you know philosophers, <laughs> and also bring to the surface some of the some of the biblical material that helps us to analyze it. So for yeah. example, when we, when we think about the crisis that we face right now with language, with, you know, everything from pronouns to, um, you know, basically little communities that have their own um, languages that people outside those communities can't understand. You know, like when someone says it's a black thing you wouldn't understand or it's a sure. woman's thing you wouldn't. Basically, we're, what we're saying is that there is no common reality that we share. Uh, that's, or maybe another way to put it is just we're so trapped in our epistemic bubbles that um, we can't really can't communicate with each other. And uh, so power is the only thing that we should be thinking about. And, and different groups are going to fight to have, you know, greater, a greater amount of power so that they can pursue their own interests or needs or whatever. Um, no one ever thinks of that, about that in terms of, of being at someone else's expense. That's why everybody needs to think of themselves as a victim. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just yeah. trying to, you know, prevent you from doing harm to me. And when we think about, okay, what's, what's the origin of that? Well, um, if we look at, uh, how Adam names the animals there in chapter three of Genesis, you know, we're told that, you know, this is right, like straight out of children's Bible stuff, you know, like, you know, we've got a picture of Adam and we got yeah. a giraffe, <laughs> right? And he said, what are you going to call this one? And I'm, you know, and, and we're not given any insight into his method. It's mm -hmm. like, I guess, whatever arbitrarily uh, Adam thinks up that actually plays right into contemporary uh, linguistic theory that basically this is all just arbitrary and yeah. Specific. Use determines meaning, right? Yeah. Yeah, and historically conditioned and stuff like that. Yeah, and so it, it naming is an exercise of power, uh, kind of raw power. So 
you know, language is just a tool to control things, mm. to identify things so that you can come back and do stuff with it. But then we look at uh, how Adam actually names his wife. So he's, he's actually is, uh, making some observations. And so there's some, there's some reason for the name, you know, in other words, he's not imposing uh, an arbitrary definite or an arbitrary uh, name upon, you know, that serves his own interests. He's saying, no, this is what, characterizes this other person you know mm. she's she's like me but she's not me uh she's from me but she's now looking back at me so woman then you know eve uh because she's the mother of all the living so this is really something that is intrinsic to her being she is yeah. a mother or will be a mother contrast that with that babel story so in the babel story language is uh divorced from the world of the created world and it's entirely been instrumentalized to build this civilization uh and it breaks down hmm. now the curse you know whenever you see the the curse referenced again in children's bibles basically the sort of the, the implicit message is this is why the french talk so funny that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it's just, it's just kind of like oh, this is an explanation for why we have all these different languages. i think it's a it's a more subtle and incisive critique of, of the of the, uh, this instrumentalist approach to language because if we think about language as strictly a tool that helps us to control the world it isn't a big step or a, a leap to wonder, well, is it being used to control me? Mm -hmm. And once that occurs, then you have the fracturing. You've got trust breaks down, uh, language develops in ways that, uh, you know, sort of serve the interest of particular uh, parties. Hmm. And then you get conflict. And that's why you end up with the fracturing of this unified community. Yeah, uh, we see the we see the curse addressed in at Pentecost with the, you know the the work of the Spirit, but um, it, it, when I think about it in those terms, it makes tons of sense to me that the stuff that we're dealing with in our society right now uh, reflects not just recent developments in linguistic theory or or <laughs> re recent uh, you know postmodern takes on the nature of or, you know, reality or what we call reality or radical subjectivity or anything like that. I think it's yeah. just, this reflects kind of the, the challenge uh, that we face when we have a world uh, where people don't trust each other. That That's really incisive, uh, insightful, because that uh, if you were to give, if you were to reverse that and say, no, it is the instrument, it's the uh, the impact of the instrumentalist view or the postmoderns, it's giving a little bit too much credit to them, right? It's like, well, <laughs> how many people were reading Foucault, right? Like maybe a lot. He's the most <laughs> you know cited author ever, right, but right. now afterwards, right? But it's not, it, it's, and I don't want to only go the sociological route and say, no, this the play, the pieces were in place. No, it, re it represents something deeper. And and if you look at Babel as not a just so story that we, you know, this mm -hmm. and this is how. The French, but but <laughs> I, I like them, and it's it's a lot deeper and richer. Um, I, I really enjoy that. I, it makes me wonder about naming our children. Yeah, and, and I'm like, man, I don't know, because we don't know much about our kids when they're born. It's like, what are we going to call him? Like the strong one? I don't. Maybe what if he's weak? Or or do we yeah. name him that in order for him to live up to that? Like, yeah. have you thought about? Uh, oh yeah, how we I name think, things. I think about it a lot. So um, yeah, when you think about say names in particularly Genesis. 
uh, it's almost like they're warnings to the community. Watch out for this guy. <laughs> you know, like uh, <laughs> so good, J- Jacob. <laughs> yeah, right. Watch out for this guy. And yeah. why? You, actually, you did need to watch out for that guy. Yeah. And same with Esau. You need to watch out for that guy. Hmm. Uh, or a name like Isaac, which means laughter, but it actually kind of has an onomatopoeia. It sounds like he, in Hebrew, it sounds like laughing with a hmm. name. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I think about that quite a bit uh, today. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we we when we name children we don't either we just do it because we like the sound of something or we're trying to honor a person or there's a hope where we're mm. saying we, we hope this child lives up to this and i think that's fine but unless we want to wait for you know until the kids like seven or eight we can say well i know i got enough material to work with now <laughs> right, right. but uh yeah I, I do think that's uh worth thinking about and um now it's interesting that sometimes you know, names do have an impact on a person. Mm-hmm. Like if I named my child a banana split, it'd probably mess with them. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, something like that. Um, so, you know, we do need to be con- concerned about how the name influences the child's prospects. And I yeah, think- my dad has, has a story. I remember I was with him. We were in uh, cub foods when those were still around and the, the, the woman ringing us up, her name was Vendetta, and my dad like lost it. <laughs> he's like, "What do you mean, Vendetta? You, your parents named you that?" And right, right. he's, uh, you know, he's t- Italian, but he's like American Italian, but he knows right. what a Vendetta is. Sure, and his, sure. His his uh, father was from Sicily, so it's like you don't. That's right. not something you take very lightly, man. <laughs> Who did that to you? Yeah. My guess is, is her parents just thought like the sound of it or something. And she was African American, so it doesn't have the same kind of thing in that in yeah. that culture. Sure, yeah. sure. Um, <laughs> Which is wild. When when I think about uh, providence and wisdom, I think that the culture at large, like you said, is missing out on providence. And so they're probably missing out on the objective fact of reason or living your life in light of the, the logos that is diffused throughout reality or, or has planned and, and, you know, living in light of that. When I think of Christians um, and, and providence, I'm wondering, even in, in light of your book, you know, how to defeat the totalitarianism. I, I see a lot of Christians who are like, I read the end of the book and Jesus wins. Yeah, sure. like, oh, so you just sit here? Like, what are you right, talking about? Right. Like, how does he right. win? Does he not use his people? Like, right. um, and I see that an awful lot where people are like, I'm not worried about AI because I know the end of the story. And I'm like, oh, I read Revelation too. And I don't see anything about the United States living through yeah, an yeah. AI invasion or anything. Like, who, right. who, how do you know that we're going to be okay? You know? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you could say that if you're in a, you know, would, would, would that be your, the source of comfort to somebody that's in a concentration camp? You know, right. Know who, who, <laughs> right. Wouldn't it be great if we weren't in this concentration camp? Yeah, you know, yeah. If we were someplace else. Yeah, I think that we need to take, you know, the moment we find ourselves in seriously and... So my, my, my book is an attempt. So the second half of the book will be uh, an attempt to draw from Christian teaching uh, various uh, act, you know, sort of uh, practices, activities or things you can do, not just as individuals, but as churches or groups or whatever to, to uh, look after the interests of people, not just in the church, but even more broadly. Mm. So, and I, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the problem that we face in our in our society today is we we really don't have a way of talking about uh, I'm talking about the secular world uh, the reality of, of human beings 
uh, as images of God. Yeah. You know, so uh, everything is, you know, physics and chemistry. And we're not really sure there's anybody home. <laughs> so, so um, I'm not even sure if I'm home if I read, you know, Daniel Dennett, you know. <laughs> so with all that kind of stuff, uh, as Christians, we have to acknowledge the real presence. So when we use the term real presence, you know, at least in certain circles, that's got a sacramental character. You know, we're talking about the nature of the, of the Eucharist um, or what goes on in baptism. But, and I think that's true, but I think we need to say, you know, there's a real presence in heaven. There's a real presence in Parker. There's a real presence in my daughter. You know, it's mm. not just when, I, you know, this, uh, this sort of me mechanistic outlook I know that there's the danger of the ghost machine and that kind of stuff, but I, I just don't know if we'll ever uh, have the ability to um, truly get at the at the nature of what it makes means to be human a human being. You know the essential character. I think we could describe facts like this is what Jesus does when he talks about the spirit. You know you can. You can see the, the effects, but you can't see it where it's coming from yeah. and that kind of thing. You know, so there's there's a sense in which uh, I have to, um, as a matter of, so I, if I acknowledge my own presence, um, then I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt of, of the same thing. Right. <laughs> you know, you're really there, Parker. Yeah. You're, you're not just in my head. <laughs> right. Right. And especially if we, if, if I believe other things like that, you're made in God's image, well then why wouldn't you have a consciousness like me? You know, cause yeah. I have these kind of natural kinds set up because there's a kind uh, originator who made us, you know? Yeah. And I think what we're dealing with, with materialists is there's just so much question begging, you know, with mm. the positivist outlook, they, there's a, there's a lack of self-awareness on the part of many of those folks. They don't, I don't know if they just have never thought about it or they're just, I don't want to think about it. Mm -hmm. um, that what I think is foundational isn't as foundational as, as, as it's made out to be. Yeah. I, I think that this perspective is a correction against um, the, the real presence perspective is a correction against that standpoint epistemology you're talking about where it's like, Hey, look, if I'm black or I'm Hispanic, you can never know what it's like. And the uh, materialist view where you see every single day, someone saying, and now they've discovered how to read your thoughts off your brain. And I'm like, well, <laughs> doubt, you know, I'm going to push that doubt square. Um, but it's, right. it's, it's, it's both. It's like, well, you'll never get inside here. You'll never be able to do that. And yet I can use language to, uh, help you see my, from my perspective and we can, mm -hmm. I can, we can make an analogy between the two and I can help you understand, even mm -hmm. though you don't know qualitatively exactly what it's like to be me. Mm -hmm. Fine. But why should, why, why should I have to have that in order to understand your perspective? You know, we're linguistic yeah, and I, beings. And I think yeah. too, I mean, the wonder of being a human being, uh, the, 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 the things that we, we share in common that make us human, uh, that's, those aren't, occupying our attention bunch these days <laughs> that mm. it seems to me that was what fascinated uh people in the past yeah you know uh would you put it, the arts in there is that is that yeah i think i think so isn't it marvelous that we have so many things in common i mean isn't that oh, unusual yeah. <laughs> yeah the human experience right yeah, yeah. <laughs> right now i know i know we don't want to paper over stuff but at the mm. same time um 
if we really are as alien to uh, to one another as is sometimes maintained, then why is justice even a concern? Yeah. Why not just wipe out uh, groups of people who are a problem? Yeah. Man, that's that's good. It's tough, right? But that's it's really good. There's there's two questions that have uh, been in the area of our conversation that I, that I want to get at. And I, I have to just shoehorn them in cause I can't think of a great uh, <laughs> way to do it, but you've talked about dominion before. I mean, the, the whole book in the house of Tom Bombadil, again, I want to commend this to folks. You can find that link in the description. If you buy it from that link, you can support this podcast as well, but d- dominion domicile, domus, like th- th- all the same root word. Do you think our dominion is limited to earth oh, or wow. do you think that, is it ungodly if we uh, invest in colonizing Mars? Yeah. That, you know, uh, there's two sides to this question for me anyway. One is, is um, uh, there's a humility that I think is, is important to, to reconcile with dominion. And having dominion doesn't mean you just have carte blanche to do whatever you please mm-hmm. and that's one of the things i get into in the bombadil book um on the other hand i i do have kind of a gee whiz sci-fi kind of side mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> and it's like yeah, it's kind of cool you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know so like i'm working on a, a a review of uh george gilder's book men in marriage right now for touchstone magazine and the thing that impressed me press, impresses me most most about gilder is he has that kind of boyish gee whiz quality you know <laughs> so here's a guy who was a brahmin you know sort of new england brahmin super high class you know he's descended from tiffany you know rockefeller was his godfather well okay <laughs> super connected <laughs> went to harvard his father went to harvard you know that kind of thing mm-hmm. and yet and yet uh he's got this sort of ray bradbury uh robert heinlein kind of you know, boys' life sci-fi kind of gee whizness, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and everything he, he writes about like <clears throat> brings those two things together. So he's got this kind of uh, affection for you know, sort of mom and mom's apple pie, you know, middle America kind of s- decency, and at the same time, rocket ships, and, <laughs> yeah. and it's like all the stuff he wrote about you know, uh, Silicon Valley and all that kind of stuff. So I, I, I kind of, I, I kind of relate to that. You know, I, I've got this sort of, uh, you know, Norman Rockwell kind of outlook and, yeah. uh, Ray Bradbury, Martian Chronicles yeah. <laughs> kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that answers anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good in, it's insight into of- you. Yeah, yeah, it's just kind of the way I wish it works. I hope it works. I hope it works that we get to colonize planets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've noticed that too. I've noticed um, uh, like MacArthur, John MacArthur will be like, no, it's it's this earth that's been given to man and the rest is just sin. And then I've seen the others who are like, no, dude, everything, you know, I'm going to be a transhumanist and I'm going to, you know, put, I'm going to upload myself. I'm like, wait. Is that the only two? <laughs> the only two options is those yeah. two. Yeah. Well, I think that's that's great. Yeah, because I I do think that like Gilder, um, and I know some people have some crit- critiques for Gilder for a range of reasons, and that's fine. I'm not trying to say that he's perfect or anything, but he does at least have a vision 
that's appealing and, mm-hmm. and wholesome. Mm. You know, like I don't look at the transhumanists and think wholesome. Yeah. I think, I think monsters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, when I think about say like a MacArthur esque kind of uh, crimped sort of, or even, you know, uh, Wendell Berry, you know, so if the choice was between uh, Wendell Berry and um, transhumanism, you know, uh, Ray Kurzweil, I'll take yeah. Wendell every day. Give me 40 acres and a mule. Uh, okay. okay. Yeah. 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 But if, if there's a possibility that George Gilder is right and that mm-hmm. we can have, um, you know, pecan pie on Thanksgiving and, and clean cut kids and rocket ships, that's what I'm, that's what, yeah, man. what I like, you know? <laughs> yeah. That sounds really good. I, I ask, um, I'm, in my head, I don't know, maybe this is too like millennial for you, but um, I have Sherlock Holmes Game of Shadows, the the second one. So um, Moriarty and that that classic 19, uh, 1890s clothes, yeah, like yeah. peak, peak in my mind, it's the peak yeah, fashion. Yeah. I don't think we'll ever beat it. Are you a steampunk kind of guy? Not, not, oh, not quite steampunk. Um, I do like it, but I think, um, shoot, like cyberpunk maybe, but not dystopia. Yeah. If we can, you know, if yeah, we can not yeah. have a dystopian. <laughs> so it's between, right. it's between Game of Shadows and uh, Tron legacy with the this shiny like yeah, i have yeah. a you know back here but that like neon blue if we can do those together like <laughs> that is something you know well, you see but, that's that's really my project like when people will ask me about uh the household stuff that i've written so i've got a trilogy of books on household household economics and stuff like that mm-hmm. and they and they immediately think i'm talking about wendell berry and mules yeah. you know i'm like no <laughs> you know i think i think uh, air conditioning is great i want to yeah. keep it I think uh, I like muscle cars. I like, you know, a, a lot of stuff. I like uh, antibiotics. I, I yeah. like all that stuff. I want to keep it. I, I think that the challenge is for us to find a way to pull together some of the best things of these different sort of projects. Mm-hmm. You know, I think conservatism best understood in the best way is uh, receiving from our ancestors, the riches that they have to give us mm. doesn't mean we have to buy into their sins. You yeah. know, we can, we can, we can freely condemn, you know, the things that they did that were wrong. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, uh, when we look forward, we don't have to do all the crazy things that maybe we can. <laughs> That's, right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I I speak with with AI folks uh, who are in AI proper, not the philosophy of mind folks. Those guys are all over the place. But the AI folks proper are like all in on transhumanism. And they're yeah. like, yeah, of course this is going to happen. I'm not going to, you know, so long humanity, you know, hello, whatever we give birth to. And I'm like, yeah, that's yeah. like so terrifying that you're just yeah. so cool with that. Yeah, yeah, that is nuts. May you know, It's like the, the did you ever see... Um, uh, filler on the roof. When I was young, yeah, not enough to. There's this marvelous line where the you know it's a Jewish community you know in Russia, and the one of the rabbis uh, is there, and his student comes up and says, "Is there a blessing for the czar?" And he says, "A blessing for the czar? May God bless and keep the czar very, very far away from us." <laughs> <laughs> That's, <awesome. laughs> That's kind of way I think about those guys. <laughs> you know, yeah. just stay away from me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's so good. Um, okay, so that was that was the first one was colonizing Mars. The second is it has to do with uh, David's mighty men, and I have a hard time thinking through how to think about them 
um, because this I grew up. These are my heroes. I wanted to be then. I wanted to be Benaya. I wanted to go kill a tiger uh, in the snow <laughs> in a pit. And right, uh, right. I love tigers, but I've wanted to kill one just to say I'm Benaya. Yeah. And I, in my head, I'm like, were these just men for a certain time? And like, could, could these could these men be good standing members of my church? Could they be elders at my church? Could David be? Because David wasn't allowed to build the temple. You know, Solomon right, had to. Right, right. And, and I'm like, man, I don't know. If I, am I just because they're in the Bible doesn't mean I should look up to them, I guess. But these are these are men of war. They spilled blood, but also like they seem like they're noble, yeah. uh, you know, good men. How do how do we think about them? <clears throat> well, I guess um, one of the things to consider is what it means to spill blood. Mm. Um, it's a necessary act. Um, you know, we think about um, ritual uncleanness and the paradoxical character of blood and in, in, in all of that. I guess, um, you know, the life is in the blood. That's something that was uh, noted in scripture. I think in terms of what we admire in a man of war, I think what we admire are the virtues uh, that we see that you need to possess if you're going to be successful. Uh, mm. Courage, of course. Um, intelligence, if you're going to you know, make certain that you're not deceived and, and defeated. Uh, there, so there are a range of things that we admire, and they can only be they can only be developed in the practice of those virtues. So that's I think I'm definitely Aristotelian enough to say that. Okay. You know, it's not just like you know, just like magic kind of thing that you get like uh, from the matrix where you download yeah. you know, an ability to do something. Yeah, right. <laughs> you actually have to do something. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I, I'm of the conviction that, um, you know, those traditional martial virtues are praiseworthy. Um, and I think I can justify that because, you know, our God is a God of war. Um, yeah. Like I remember when I first was a believer, there were there were a number of words that were puzzling to me. Like, uh, take my yoke upon you. Yoke, I thought of like eggs. You know, what's yeah, that going to yeah. do with anything? I didn't have any exposure to farming or husbandry. Uh, another one was hosts. You know, the Lord of Hosts. I just thought God was a great party giver. You know, just, yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that the host was like an army. Came mm -hmm. <laughs> to understand that later. So um, this God fights. Um, so, uh, does that mean I'm into Genghis Khan? I, I, you know, that's, that's another one of those things, you know, is, is, you know, what kind of warrior are we talking about? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think, um, there's something to be said for that. Maybe I'm just, uh, insufficient, insufficiently, uh, woke, <laughs> but I still, <laughs> I still good. admire, you know, the martial virtues. Yeah. Yeah, I think of um, I forgot the the title of the essay, but C.S. Lewis totally shines in his essays. I love his essays, and it's like, it's like the necessity of chivalry or something about chivalry. And, and in there, he talks about these these knights who are accustomed to seeing smashed faces, and yet then they go to the ball and they yeah, can right. dance really well with the the maidens. Yeah, and it's like yeah. man, yeah, okay. I don't know that I'd like to see smashed faces, <laughs> but you know, if God calls me right. to, because I'm not like. I, I'm trying to be a man, you know, I'm trying to be like a masculine dude. I'm trying to embody that. I grew a mustache you know, as a stand in, you know, until I get there. But, uh, you know, I'm not, the, I'm not the baddest dude around, but I'm trying to be 
you know, a godly man who can handle himself and protect my family. And yeah, I'm great. like, you know, I don't know if I have to go smashing faces. I don't think that's part of it. But how do I look? How do I embody you know, the attributes of Christ in this modern world, which is like if you if someone slaps your wife's butt and you punch them, you could go to jail. And it's like, does this is that what my wife needs? But I want to defend her honor. But sure. your honor, the judge doesn't know about honor anymore. And so if yeah. I use that defense, you know, your honor, I was trying to defend her honor. And like, what's honor? What are you talking about? Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, honor. We don't live in an honor society, although there are certain subcultures where honor is still, uh, I think, least if not named, uh, practiced or at least yeah. acknowledged in some way. So, I, you know, like I think about certain cultures in Europe. When you think about Sicily, you think about Italian Italian culture, many uh, of the Latin or Romance or you think about the Irish or the Scots, you know, that in those place, places where you still see it. Um, I've got a theory, by the way, why so many sort of Scots-Irish guys marry Italian girls. And it's because um, they're both honor cultures. And so they kind of get each other. But the, the Italian girls know how to cook. <laughs> that's good i'm scottish italian and hispanic so so yeah well all three of those are, the, are honor cultures you know so yeah well man this has been good I, you, you got to come back because i got a lot more questions <laughs> uh, this has been really great I, I don't i don't know if the description in the beginning you know matched it but whatever guys you're still here if you're listening and i appreciate it um chris man thanks thanks so much for all your wisdom i'm gonna have to listen to this back over a couple times and chew on it this has been really good <laughs> Well, it's been a fun talk, Parker. I, I've enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Um, so if someone wants to hear more from you, and maybe this is the first time, um, you got the Theology Pugcast. Can you, uh, can, you, can you promote that for them and tell people where sure. else they might find some of your works? Well, the Pugcast is a weekly podcast like yours. Uh, we're available on you know, all the platforms and YouTube and stuff like that. We, we uh, get about 10,000, uh, I guess, views, downloads, whatever, between all the different platforms every week. Yeah. And uh, the, the people who are on the show with me are Glenn Sunshine and Tom Price. They're, he's an historian. Uh, Glenn's an historian and Tom is a, a theologian who studied in, at Oxford. And, um, and we have guests, and, uh, but sometimes we just do the, a conversation on a theme but, but among ourselves. And so that's a good place to follow or keep up with me. And then, you know, I, I, I write for different publications. Um, you know, like World Magazine or, you know, I publish a number of things with different publishing houses. So, you know, I, I, I kind of keep keep up with that kind of thing. Yeah. And I'm on social media. Yeah. Chris, uh, Chris, do you have a website that people can find those publications at? Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm on uh, crwiley.com. Cool. I never go there, uh, I, but it's amazing how many people do go there. I, like I get the numbers every month, like a thousand people. Like, yeah. who are you people? Yeah. Right. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I'll put a link in the description to that folks and to uh, the theology podcast. Um, well, thanks again, man. This has been really great. And I hope it's just the second in a long line of you helping me think uh, wisely and like, like a Christian man. Well, um, I, I've enjoyed it, like I said, and you had some great thoughts too. And uh, yeah, I'd be glad to come back. Awesome. All right, folks, that's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.